morning, everyone. Uh, let me begin with a few special uh, introductions. We are uh, gratified to have the Women's Law Caucus and Professor uh, Lydia Lavelle from North Carolina Central, uh, who wanted to make this uh, special for Justice Hudson in this last oral argument. Welcome, glad to have you here today. Uh, we also have a bunch of familiar faces in the audience, and uh, I would be uh, remiss if I try to name them all, but nonetheless, uh, Gaynell has done a great job in getting uh, many of Justice Hudson's former law clerks here this morning. Uh, welcome, welcome back. Uh, part of the court family, once a part, always a part. And it's just great to see y'all as you too want to celebrate Justice Hudson. So thank you for being here. Uh, that being said, uh, we will call our case today, which is State versus Brikakov, and we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court. My name is Mark Sneed. I'm here on behalf I'm with the Department of Justice, and I'm here on behalf of the state. It is the state's contention that the record evidence in defendant's trial reflects that his behavior exhibited the requisite malice necessary to meet the elements of second-degree murder. As a result of this showing, defendant was not entitled to an instruction on involuntary manslaughter. A trial court is obligated to instruct the jury as to the lesser included offense of the crime charged when there is evidence presented that could result in a jury concluding that the defendant committed the lesser crime. The issue of whether to provide a jury instruction for a lesser included offense only arises when there is evidence presented to the jury from which a jury could conclude that the lesser offense was committed. However, the trial court is not required to give an instruction of the lesser offense when the state's evidence is positive as to each and every element of the crime charged and there's nothing, there's no conflicting evidence relating to any element of the charged crime. In the instant case, the defendant was convicted of second degree murder. The law defines second degree murder as the unlawful killing of a human being with malice but without premeditation or deliberation. According to the pattern jury instructions which were given at the trial, the state was required to prove three things. One, the defendant was wounded with a deadly weapon. Second, the defendant acted intentionally and with malice. And third, the defendant's act was approximate cause of the victim's death. Involuntary manslaughter is the instruction that defendant has sought to um, have given to the jury in this case. Involuntary manslaughter is defined as the unlawful killing of another human being without malice, without premeditation and deliberation, without intention to kill or inflict serious or bodily injury. The basic distinction between second-degree murder and involuntary manslaughter is the presence of malice. Under the law, there are three theories on which malice might be established. First, there's ex expressed hatred, ill will, or spite. Second, there's the commission of inherently dangerous acts in such a reckless and wanton manner as to manifest in a mind utterly without regard for human life and social duty and deliberately bent on mischief. Third, there's a condition of the mind which prompts a person to take the life of another intentionally without just cause, excuse, or justification. In looking at malice, a rebuttal presumption of malice arises when there is an intentional use of deadly weapon proximately causing death. How should we look at 
I'm sorry. <laughs> you know I'm yielding to you today uh, of all days. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the Court of Appeals obviously disagreed since you're standing here as appellant and thought that there was a question as to the proof of certain aspects of malice. Um, what part of that do you think the Court of Appeals was wrong about? So, Your Honor, I believe that the Court of Appeals primarily based their finding of malice in the DiBiase case. I believe that the Court of Appeals misread the DiBiase case because the facts of DiBiase and the facts of this case are vastly different. Um, in the DiBiase case, basically what you had, you had a, um, the victim, I'm sorry, one of the parties went to talk to, I, th I believe it's the defendant went to talk to the victim's girlfriend at kind of a bonfire party. And the defendant was upset that this person wanted to talk to his girlfriend. A melee broke out. And basically what happened was you had the victim charge the defendant. The defendant had a beer bottle in his hand and he broke the beer bottle. Well, he hit the, he hit the victim over the head with the beer bottle. They fell into the bonfire and somehow the, the bottle broke and there was a wound that um, went into the victim's neck where he eventually died. Um, in that instance, they said that it was okay to give the, the instruction for involuntary manslaughter. However, this case is different because in the DiBiase case, you had, you had the presumption that arose, but there was also evidence where that presumption could basically be washed away. And what presumption are you saying specifically? The presumption of malice, Your Honor. Um, basically, what, if, what, what makes that presumption arise here? Well, basically, you have the killing with a deadly weapon. They found that a bottle could have been a deadly weapon. Not here. Not here. Well, no. In the instant case, we have the deadly weapons being the hands. The hands are considered the deadly weapon here, Your Honor. And um, is, that, is that presumptive, or is that for the jury? I believe it's presumptive, Your Honor, um, because what we have here is the defendant in the instant case actually admitted to assaulting the victim. In the, um, in the hotel room on New Bern Avenue, room 241. So basically what happened was the, de the defendant in this instant case, he beats this woman so badly that she injured, well, they broke, he broke her cheekbones, her nose, and her jaw as well. Um, he admitted in, under oath, um, outside of the presence of the jury, that he assaulted her in this vicious manner. Well, um, um, the, one of the, factual matters that the Court of Appeals majority pointed to was the fact that the assault was not the sole cause of death, that there were other pre-existing conditions and drug use that were factors. That's correct, Your Honor. Um, the victim, Nadia Brikikov, died as a result of three um, kind of comorbidities. There were the facial fractures, there was also a um, heart condition that she had, and there was also fentanyl that was found in her system. However, when you look at the testimony of the medical examiner, the medical examiner said that the, there was blood in her airway which could have obstructed her airway, and he said that all three of these um, comorbidities led to her death. Um, while the facial fractures may not have been the sole cause of death, it was, in, it was a contributing factor. All three of the medical experts that testified at trial um, agreed that this was a homicide. Well, is the proximate cause issue part of the malice element? I don't believe the proximate cause is, I don't believe the proximate cause issue, well, 
it's got to lead to death or serious bodily injury. I don't believe that proximate cause is part of the malice. I believe that if you have serious, seriously bodily injury, then I believe that you can get to malice, Your Honor. Well, it seems, I mean, it seems like what the Court of Appeals did was um, to determine that that as part of it was raised enough of a question of fact that it should be for the jury and that that instruction should have been given so the jury could sort it out. And it does seem that this is different from the Court of Appeals case, the DiBiase, I think you said. That's correct. Right. Justice Irvin can enlighten us further about that case, I'm sure. <laughs> but it's factually very different in that there were lots of eyewitnesses there. Exactly. And there was a the bottle, broken bottle as a weapon, which is in some ways the facts were worse there than they are here from in terms of the, what was directly viewed. That's correct, correct Your Honor. That's correct. Um, in this case, what we have is we have an intentional beating that was absolutely vicious to um, Ms. Brikakov. Um, as a result of that beating, she sustained the injuries that I just talked of, a fractured jaw, um, a broken nose, and also um, broken cheekbones. Um, in DiBiase, we had testimony, and we, when viewed in the light most favorable to the defendant, that the defendant only hit him, hit the victim over the, um, over the head when he was charged by the victim. Secondly, we have evidence that, um, I'm sorry, evidence that there was absolutely no stabbing whatsoever. And third, we have um, evidence put forth by the defense that he only stabbed him once. And so in that issue, in the DiBiase case, on those facts, you can actually get that to a jury because there is a reasonable question as to whether he committed the lesser offense of involuntary manslaughter. Here we don't have any sort of facts that kind of negates the Mr. Brickhoff, the defendant's intent. Here we have surveillance at the hotel where basically Nadia and the defendant are the only two people in this hotel, this hotel room, room 241, um, for hours and hours on end. At about three, four in the morning, hotel surveillance shows that the door is open. The only people that are in the room are Nadia Brickhoff and the defendant. Nadia is seen and she's flopping around on the floor um, when Raleigh PD went to the room. There were no weapons in the room. Um, to your point earlier, there was evidence that cocaine was found on the table. And also, we saw that Nadia was just in a bad state. Um, well, wasn't there evidence that the defendant and the victim, who were husband and wife, they were. Um, had earlier that day been declaring their love and affection for each other? And doesn't that cut against the malice? I don't believe so, Your Honor. Um, even though they were husband and wife, it was a volatile reaction, it was a volatile relationship. Um, for a long time. As a matter of fact, well, that the, can cut both ways, but that would make it an issue for the jury, wouldn't it? Not in this issue, and not in this instance, Your Honor. I believe that when you're looking at malice, you're looking at somebody with basically a depraved heart. This person, the defendant, he beat Nadia Brickhoff to the point where the medical examiner said that you could actually move her face without actually moving her head. And so when you think about the brute force that's taken to get to that sort of a point. Um, he's using her hands to viciously beat this woman to the point where you can move her face without moving her head. That's malice, Your Honor, in my opinion. Um, the defendant never def denied that um, this beating of the defendant was, an, was unintentional. Um, this was an intentional kind of felonious assault that he committed against his wife. And going back to the Debassier case, um, what happened there is you have an instance where you don't have any evidence that 
whatever happened to Mr. DeBassier, or I'm sorry, the victim in the DeBassier case um, intentionally meant to seriously injure or kill the victim. In this case, it's patently obvious that the defendant, Mark Brikikov, intentionally used his fists to assault Nadia Brikikov to the point where he broke her face bones, her nose, and her jaw. Um, there is no <coughs> doubt that, or there's no question that this assault was, this assault was intentional. And there's the no way- The defendant didn't deny that he assaulted her. He did not. did deny the remaining elements of secondary murder. He did. He did deny the, the remaining elements of second-degree murder, which did go to a jury, Your Honor, um, and the jury elected to convict him of second-degree murder, which was proper. Um, and also looking at whether, and looking at malice, um, just Judge Carpenter and the dissent and the Court of Appeals opinion, he noted that in the sentencing phase of the um, of the trial that we're talking about here, this Rikikov case, the jury found that this was an unusually heinous and vicious um, assault. I was um, going to ask you about that. What bearing does that have on the determination before the verdict of what should go to the jury on guilt or innocence? Correct, Your Honor. And so the part that I just mentioned, that's part of the sentencing phase. It's different from the deliberative phase where we're getting to our jury verdict of second-degree murder. So you're not saying it has any bearing on what the instructions were that should have been given? I'm just saying that it has, it kind of gives us insight into what the jury was thinking. Um, the jury was given the jury charge of, of murder. I think they could have convicted a first degree or a second degree. Um, they weren't given manslaughter for the reasons that we're arguing about here. Um, but it's just kind of a window into what the jury was thinking. And looking at the sentencing phase, from what I recall in reading the, the transcript, the only new kind of evidence to consider for that was, um, I believe it was evidence that the um, Nadia and Mark Brikikov were married, and I think there was also evidence of a parole violation as aggravating factors, but I don't believe that they heard anything further about the nature of the injuries. So they're looking at the same sort of evidence that they've already convicted him on second-degree murder for, and of course, all of us know that an element of second-degree murder is malice. So they've already convicted him of malice, and so this just give us, gives us further insight into how they got to get to the malice part of the analysis. What I've got a couple wanted to ask at some point. In reading the dissent, it wasn't entirely clear to me whether the dissent was saying there was no error here or, or that any error was not prejudicial. Uh, what is your read on the ultimate position taken by the dissent? When I read the dissent, um, I think that he looked heavily on the aggravating factors that we just spoke about. Um, I also believe that... Which, which I think you, in response to Justice Hudson's question, I think you, I don't know if you conceded, but you acknowledged that at least at the time the decision not to submit involuntary manslaughter was made, that had, the finding of heinous, atrocious, cruel hadn't happened yet. That's correct, John. And so does that go to a lack of prejudice? Does it go to a lack of of evidence to support a finding that the defendant was guilty of involuntary manslaughter. I mean, I, I just felt like the dissent kind of went back and forth, and it wasn't entirely clear to me what the point of the dissent was. What does the state think the point of the dissent was? I think the point of the dissent was that he disagreed with the majority and their finding that there was not malice. That's the essence of the dissent. Okay. Se secondly, 
You've talked uh, about essentially implied malice from the use of a deadly weapon. Was that the only theory of malice that was submitted by the trial court? I believe so, Your Honor. Basically, what the trial I mean, typically typically the instruction starts off with malice can mean you know hatred, ill will, or spite, and then goes on to say that's not the only kind of malice. That's the instruction that was given here, wasn't it? So, Your Honor, I've got the jury instruction here. Basically, what the trial the jury in this course in this case heard is if the state proves beyond a reasonable doubt the defendant intentionally inflicted a wound upon the victim with a deadly weapon that proximately caused the person's death, he may infer, but first, that the killing was unlawful, and second, that it was done with malice, but you're not compelled to do so. So, so it's the, state's, the state concedes that no express malice instruction was given? I can't concede that, Your Honor, okay. without actually looking, without La actually going through the Lastly, and I'll take a crack at pronouncing the name, too. I, re I remember it as being Tobias, but that's uh, <laughs> uh, neither here nor there. I don't think we orally argued that case. Does it make a difference that, at least in this case, I don't think we have any direct evidence of how the injuries were inflicted? In other words, what happened at the time that the defendant assaulted uh, the victim, whereas in Tobias, uh, there was a lot of evidence as to what happened uh, ranging from from a whole bunch of people that all seem to have seen different things. Does that make a difference? I don't believe so here, Your Honor. Um, in this case, it's strong circumstantial evidence that Mark Brikikov, um committed the assault. Um, and it's, I wouldn't even call it circumstantial because he's already admitted to it. He's conceded the fact that he assaulted Nadia in, in the manner which um, I previously described. Um, and looking at the evidence, there were only two people in that room. There was blood everywhere. Um, Nadia came out with broken bones all over the place. Um, and we see that Mark Brickacob left. Um, essentially, he left Nadia in the um, doorway um, for 30 minutes before any sort of uh, medical, medical um, help could, could arrive for her. I'd like to follow up on the first question that Justice Irvin asked you about the dissent in this case, because I'm correct, you filed your notice of appeal based on the dissent and did not file an additional um, petition for discretionary review in this case, right? Uh, that's correct, Your Honor. And at the beginning of the dissent, um, Judge Carpenter says, based upon the jury finding beyond a reasonable doubt that this offense was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel as an aggravating factor, it appears clear the verdict would not have been different had the trial judge given the lesser included involuntary manslaughter instruction. So there he's talking about prejudice, that yes. the verdict would not have been different. And at the very conclusion of his dissent, he says, I would find no error in the trial court's decision to decline to de deliver an instruction to the jury on involuntary manslaughter because the jury's verdict would not have been different had the instruction been given, therefore I dissent. Isn't that also, he's, he, his, isn't this dis dissent based on his conclusion that there would not be prejudice? That's correct, Your Honor. So is it, why isn't that the only issue that's before us today? Prejudice, Your Honor? That's right. In other words, given that your appeal is based on this dissent, why isn't the only issue that this court needs to decide is whether or not the Court of Appeals got it right on the issue of prejudice? So I believe that if we're talking about the issue of prejudice, that goes back to the issue that's before you today as to whether malice was, um, was actually present 
by the with the evidence um, that was put forth. If this court were to find that there was malice, um, he would have been convicted on the um, the greater charge of second degree murder, hence no prejudice. So I believe that the issues are stated differently, but they're the same. My understanding is that the prejudice analysis is whether or not the jury's verdict would have been different. That's correct. So on the issue and in evaluating that, aren't we to look at the um, evidence, all of the evidence, include, well, the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant? Yes, Your Honor. And you haven't discussed the evidence from the medical examiner or the pathologist that the defendant put on the stand who said that the um, injuries from the beating would not alone would not have caused the death. That's true, Your Honor, but um, in talking and going through the evidence that the defendant put up, even if we do look at it in the light most favorable to the um, defendant, each of his experts still said that Nadia Brikakov died as a result of a homicide. So this beating was a contributing factor that proximately caused her death. Right, but isn't it relevant to the question of whether or not this should be second degree murder or involuntary manslaughter, whether or not um, the, the defendant would have known that, um, the, similar to DiBiase, or however it's pronounced, um, whether the defendant would have known that his beating as brutal and um, heinous that the, as the jury ultimately found it was, whether or not that would have Con, um, interacted with her drug use and her heart condition to cause her death. Don't we? Is, isn't that the, the theory here that he didn't? He he didn't know that that he he couldn't have intentionally maliciously sought to kill her because he wouldn't necessarily have known that. Just as in DiBiase, the, the defendant wouldn't have known that the bottle was going to break. He didn't know, but he didn't know that he was going to kill her. However. Given the nature of the beating, he did know that he was going to cause serious bodily injury. Um, given that the vicious, be the vicious nature of this assault, um, it's foreseeable that she would incur serious bodily injury. Um, and also, in looking at second-degree murder, all the um, as far as looking at the pattern jury instructions, um, all the all the state is required to prove he wounded the victim with a deadly weapon. He's got that because. He beat her with his hands, and we fractured her jaw, her cheekbones, and also um, her nose. Um, defendant did this, acted intentionally and with malice. So the issue that we're talking about is malice. That's what this whole thing is about. Um, defendant's act was approximate cause of the victim's death. Right. We know that this is approximate cause of the victim's death because all three medical experts have said that the facial fracture. They've all. They've all deems her death a homicide. But again, going back to the question of prejudice, because here what we're discussing is if the jury had gotten the instruction, so we're assuming that it was error not to give the instruction on involuntary manslaughter, and under the prejudice analysis, we're asking whether the failure to give that instruction would have prejudiced the defendant. And as, as I understand his argument, the jury knowing that he uh, or he admitted in closing his counsel admitted on his behalf that he committed the assault and the only issue they had to decide was what level of culpability um, existed in these circumstances and and 
given that the jury could have believed his medical evidence, um, wouldn't, isn't it at least possible that the jury would have found him guilty of involuntary manslaughter instead of second degree murder? I don't believe so, because even his evidence said that it's homicide. Um, either way you look at it. Um, but, but involuntary manslaughter is also homicide. It is a homicide, yeah. but we're looking at malice. Um, and so the whole thing that we're looking at here is whether the state presented proper evidence of malice. Um, and looking at your prejudice analysis, um, if the jury had gotten um, the involuntary manslaughter instruction, I would still argue that they would have declined to convict him on involuntary manslaughter, and they still would have risen to the point where of second-degree murder, which is where he is. Um, and if we're looking at prejudice, prejudice argument, given the vicious nature of this beating, there's malice right there. Looking at the second... Um, well, you're saying that as if that's um, required to be found by the jury, but the instructions that you were reading a few minutes ago indicated that um, the judge instructed the jury that they're not compelled to find malice. Correct. But, and the defendant was saying, well, if, if they cannot find malice, they can find there was no malice, then an option would have been manslaughter instead of being instructed that the option, the only option, if they, if they did not find malice, was to find the defendant not guilty. That's true. So basically, here we had either you convict him of murder or the, um, the jury could have acquitted him entirely. Um, so how do we know what the jury would have done if they had had another alternative um, short of not guilty to, obviously this was a terrible um, situation and th this woman was badly um, beaten and ended up being deceased, um, having no other option other than second degree murder or not guilty. Uh, having tried cases, you, you know that sure. very often if there's no option other than not guilty, you're gonna get whatever the, the options that are guilty are. So how do, we don't, how do we know what the jury would have done? So in order to convict plaintiff of second degree murder, um, beyond a reasonable doubt, the jury would have had to find malice. If the jury was not able to find malice beyond a reasonable doubt, then they shouldn't have convicted him of second degree murder. Um, because the jury was able to find beyond a reasonable doubt that there was malice that rose to the level of second degree murder, the defendant was convicted. Um, again, I know that this wasn't part of the deliberative process, but when we're looking at the <laughs> aggravating factors, they found that this was a heinous, vicious crime, or beating, um, and that was an aggravating factor. Um, given that that was kind of the mindset of the jury, I find it extremely hard to believe that even if given the involuntary manslaughter instruction, that they would have chosen that instead of the second-degree murder. Well, is it the determination of whether the, whether you get an instruction on the lesser included depending on whether um, there's a, an issue for the jury to decide about one of the elements, it, particularly the element that distinguishes secondary murder from the lesser included? Well, they're only the trial court is only required to give the lesser included uh, jury instruction if the state has not met each and every element of the greater offense. Um, what I'm arguing here today is that the state did in fact meet each and every element of second-degree murder. Well, if Justice Earls is correct, and the only issue really is whether 
there's prejudice from the failure to give the instruction on manslaughter, which appears to be the only issue identified by the dissent, um, what determines whether, whether we can decide as a matter of law whether there was prejudice or not? Whether there was prejudice? It's basically, again, looking at the quality of, it, of the evidence that was um, presented. Um, if, in fact, the state has met each and every element of um, second-degree murder, then there's not going to be any prejudice. Um, basically, I believe it's State versus Arnold says that if the state meets each and every element of the greater charge defense, then there cannot be any prejudice to the defendant because he would have convicted, would have been convicted of the um, greater offense anyway. Counsel, you're well within your rebuttal time. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. Um, at this point, I would like to, um, unless you have any other questions, I'd like to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, I'm Gordon Widenhouse representing Mark Butchikoff in this case. I think it's clear that a criminal defendant is fundamentally entitled to have the jury consider any lesser included offense that is supported by the evidence. And of course, the jury can only do that consideration if the trial court instructs on the lesser included offense, which did not happen here. The Court of Appeals majority was absolutely correct that the evidence of malice was not conclusive, and therefore the jury should have been able to consider involuntary manslaughter. When the evidence in this case is viewed in the light most favorable so, so Mr. Richikoff. To make sure I'm following you, Mr. Widenhouse, is it your argument then that in any event in which the state proceeds upon an implied malice theory and there's an issue as to whether the alleged deadly weapon is a deadly weapon or not uh, on a factual basis that involuntary has to be submitted? Not necessarily. Only when... And when would it when would it be and not be then? Well, in all honesty, I'm not and sure there would be many situations everything. where it wouldn't be. But where the evidence of malice is not conclusive and... The use of a deadly weapon allows the jury to infer malice, but it does not compel a finding of malice. In fact, the, to, to call the use of a deadly weapon creating a presumption of malice is absolutely wrong. The U.S. Supreme Court made it clear 30 years ago or 40 years ago that you can't have a presumption with respect to an element of the crime, particularly one where there's a deadly weapon used and you presume malice. So, even where there's a deadly weapon used, it would be an open question about malice. And there would need to be something else besides the use of a deadly weapon to indicate that there was malice. My position here, and I let me back up a second, and I think that is supported by the Court of Appeals analysis, and I'm going to give you a third pronunciation. I think it's debase. But, which, whatever it is, the Court of Appeals analysis in that case makes it clear that even where you use a deadly weapon, it's not necessarily done with malice. And that's why, in this case, it's important to keep in mind the testimony of the various medical examiners. Because they say, and I think they're, I think they're all in agreement with this, that the physical injuries from the beating were not the sole 
direct cause of death. Therefore, and they said the assault alone did not and would not have caused her death. In that situation, it's certainly an open question about malice. And I think that means that the defendant in this case did not know or reasonably would not have known that the beating would cause her death under these circumstances. Well, e even the, the trial court and the instructions that were given here acknowledged that it was an open question when the instruction says, with regard to malice, you, you, can, you may infer that it was done with malice, but you are not compelled to do so. Correct. And, but and then I think that gets to your question 20 minutes ago. When you have that situation, the jury, but there is an acknowledgement that the defendant did the act that was approximate cause of the death. The jury at that point either has to convict of second degree murder or they have to acquit. And where a defendant, especially through his counsel, admits committing the act, it's very difficult to imagine that a jury would outright acquit. They would tend to, I think in my experience of reading trial cases, they tend to move to whatever the lesser guilty verdict is, not an outright acquittal. Well, what's the, what's the authority on that? Because if, if we um, are operating on the, you know, the view that the only real issue presented by the dissent is whether there was a likely different outcome in the absence of the instruction, um, what would tend to indicate that there could have been a different outcome or that there was prejudice from the absence of the instruction? If they had given, I'm not sure I'm following yeah, the question. If, they, if, if the trial court had given the instruction on involuntary manslaughter, um, what, what do you point to to say that there's a reasonable possibility that the verdict would have been different? But I think, I think the burden would be on the state to show beyond a reasonable doubt the verdict wouldn't have been different. That's important here that we take the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant and if we agree that there was error in failing to submit involuntary manslaughter, then for this court to affirm or reverse the Court of Appeals, for this court to reverse the Court of Appeals and say this trial was okay, the court would have to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that a jury might not have convicted of involuntary manslaughter. And I think under these circumstances where these two people somehow got reconnected when the when Nadia had been shortly released from the hospital from having overdosed and they spend the better part of 16 hours texting back and forth. Most of the texts seem to be positive. I love you. I miss you. If you still love me, I want to get together. I'd really like to see you. That seems to be going back and forth from both people. The defendant, in fact, told her, don't go to the night's end. That's a bad place. You know, you just got out of the hospital from overdosing. There are lots of drugs at the night's end. Don't go there. That's a very positive, I hesitate in this case to use the word love or loving, but it's a very affectionate kind of concern that he was expressing for her. That goes on back and forth all day. And then he gets to the night's end where she tells him she's gone and tells him what room she's in. She tells him what room she's in. He goes to the room, knocks on the door, he lets her in. We know that from the surveillance video. And then I think there are three instances over the next three or four hours where he leaves the room, 
she's fine. He probably goes and gets some drugs or some alcohol, comes back to the room, knocks on the door, she lets him back in. So we know that there is back and forth. He leaves and he comes back, and she lets him in every time. So it certainly doesn't look like there's spite or ill will going on at that point. Well, let me ask you about the the dissent and the, the state's position is that the jury's finding of the aggravating factor of heinous, atrocious, and cruel um, indicates that there's no possibility that the jury would have come back with any lesser verdict. Well, I, I disagree that? with that, and I think then I would preface my answer by saying the court would need to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the jury wouldn't have, you know, that that's finding of heinous, atrocious, and cruel shows that they absolutely would have found malice. But I think you can easily, let me back up another second. If you look at the jury instructions at the sentencing in this case, the court doesn't define heinous, atrocious, and cruel. It just says if you find that this was a special heinous, atrocious, and cruel, that's an aggravating factor. No definition of what's heinous, no definition of what's atrocious, no definition of what's cruel. Unlike the pattern instructions for a capital case in North Carolina where if this aggravating factor is submitted to the jury, there is an explanation of what's heinous, what's atrocious, and what's cruel. So the jury doesn't get an explanation of that. Perhaps on these facts where they see the video of the last time Mr. Britchikoff leaves the room, he leaves the room and they see in the video his wife is flailing about on the floor. They know from the testimony in the case that he knows you can give someone, I think it's Naran, Naran or something like that. You can give someone that to help them recover from an overdose because he asked her when she calls him or texts him and says, I've just gotten out of the hospital, I overdosed. He asked, did they give you that? So he knows that's a remedy for an overdose, and he knows there's that that chemical is in the motel room, and yet he walks away. I think a jury could find that conduct well, it, especially atrocious. If, if I read the Court of Appeals' opinion correctly, uh, it appears that both a negligent omission and a you know, affirmative culpable negligence argument was made on your client's behalf before the Court of Appeals. I think what you just gave me was the negative omission argument. My recollection also is that the Court of Appeals didn't reach that argument. Is that correct? correct? And I, but that was an argument about using negligent omission as a basis to instruct on involuntary right. manslaughter. Okay. And the Court of Appeals said that wasn't preserved. I think that's wrong, but I didn't bring that issue up. But my point is that evidence in the case, that walking away, that omission, could have been something that a juror could find to be atrocious conduct, heinous conduct. You walk away from your spouse, don't provide medical aid that you know would have helped. I mean, he what, knew she was doing... What does that have on whether the jury would have come out differently on the... Um, on the verdict on the guilt or innocence if they'd gotten the instruction on manslaughter. Okay. Because I'm saying that they could have found 
atrocious conduct by his leaving the motel room and not rendering aid. That wasn't something that would have been submitted or considered on the basis of malice necessarily. And so my point is, I don't think, I disagree with the dissent that the jury's finding of heinous, atrocious, and cruel makes it clear, makes it clear beyond a reasonable doubt that the jury wouldn't have convicted of involuntary manslaughter if they'd been given that option. So is another way of saying what you're saying that the jury, that as a legal matter on these facts, a jury could have found him guilty of involuntary manslaughter and still found an aggravating sentencing factor of um, heinous, atrocious, and cruel. Of course. I mean, they could have convicted of involuntary manslaughter and found it was an, an especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel involuntary manslaughter. Absolutely. Let me ask you the same question I asked Mr. Sneed. What do you take the ultimate point of the dissent to be? Is it a no prejudice dissent? Is it a no error dissent? What, what's your interpretation of it? I don't know. Um, I've spent a good bit of time over the last two days reading the dissent with my wife, whom some of you know is a lot smarter than I am. And we can't figure out whether the dissent's talking about error or prejudice or a little bit of both and so I don't know I mean when I when I heard some of the questions of Mr. Sneed and heard somebody you know refer to the first part of the dissent and then the last part of the dissent it strikes me the dissent's talking about prejudice but there are other places in it where it sounds like he's disagreeing with the majority's conclusion that it was error to start with so I'm probably not being very helpful, but I'm not exactly sure what the dissent's point was. Did, did the trial court's instruction to the jury with respect to second-degree murder contain the usual language about malice can be, you know, hatred, ill will, spite, et cetera? Yes, it did include hatred, ill will, spite. Now, that's, 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 that's I've always interpreted that as, as an express malice instruction. Do you disagree with that interpretation? Well, I don't know. I've never thought about it in terms of whether it's expressed malice. It's usually written as, you know, malice can be hatred, ill will, or expressed, to be sure. Then it goes on to give the implied, uh, the, and I agree with you that it is incorrect to call it a presumption, but the permissive inference instruction arising from a deadly use of a deadly weapon. I, I guess the, if I'm still following the question, I mean, I, they gave the hatred, ill will, or spite instruction. And I guess that would be express malice. But there's, other than the beating, there's no evidence of hatred, ill will, or spite between Mark Brichikoff and Natty Brichikoff in this case. Can, can you infer, can you infer uh, hatred, ill will, or spite from the degree of the injuries that were inflicted in the extent of the, the assault? I mean, I think that, to make sure I'm answering the question, my argument is not that the evidence isn't sufficient to go to the jury in this case. I understand that, but it, it, I've always understood the point to be that essentially if the state's evidence was, and I don't remember the express language, but it's something like positive as to each element of the offense, there's no need for the submission of, an, of a lesser included, and I was ultimately going to ask is that is the evidence of express malice 
positive as, as that term is used. I don't think it is in this case. Why, why not? Because I don't see any evidence of hatred, ill will, or spite. Unless you glean that from the conflict that led at the very end that led to the beating. And I guess that was going to, another question I was going to seek some help on. In determining whether there is malice, do you focus on what happened at the time of the infliction of the harm or some other time? I think you can focus on both. Okay. I think there could be situations where if the evidence shows that two people were complaining about each other to other people, if there was if there was testimony from somebody that says, I talked to Nadia that afternoon and she had said that she'd invited Mark to the hotel room, but she's really upset about it. She doesn't, she's mad about what he's doing. Or if there was some evidence from Mark Brichikoff having told his employer who took him to the night's end, you know, I'm really irritated that she's been basically living with some other man, which she was. She was basically living with Clay Trot. And if there was some specific evidence, specific testimony that there was some expression of hatred, ill will, or spite. That would be a different situation. Again, what we know about this case is we have a pretty good record of the 16 hours before the incident with text messages going back and forth. And again, this is not what I would call a normal husband-wife relationship, at least not in my experience, um, thankfully. But it, it's, it, there isn't any indication in the text messages and their communications that they're irritated with each other. There's just no evidence that Mark Brichikoff is holding malice or ill will or spite before he goes to the motel room or even while he's at the motel room. I mean, it looks like, again, three or four times that he leaves and if he goes and gets drugs, he's going, to get it, he's going to get it for both of them to use and comes back. Where's the evidence of ill will or spite? It just, it just isn't there. And in that kind of situation where we don't have anything other than the use of the fist that was certainly a proximate cause of her death, but again, the medical evidence is it would not alone have caused her death. And if it would not alone have caused her death, then that means that Mr. Brichikoff did not know or had no reason to believe that his conduct was going to lead to his wife's death. And if, he, if that's the scenario, then it's culpable negligence, and that's involuntary manslaughter, not second-degree murder. And I think when we look at all of that evidence, again, especially the 16 hours and the text messaging and leaving and coming back to the motel room and her letting him back in every time. There's no indication she was trying to keep him away. It's hard to see how that's conclusive evidence of malice. And if it isn't conclusive evidence of malice, there's no way to say beyond a reasonable doubt that it wasn't prejudicial to fail to submit involuntary manslaughter. Well, the instruction given by the trial judge was that you, are, you, can, you can find mouse, but you're not compelled to. Correct. And so that would tend to indicate that 
the jury could have found there was not malice. Correct. Had they had other options, might have chosen those. Correct. And as I understand the prejudice argument from the state, the, the, the main thrust of it is that, well, they thought it was so terrible that they found it was heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and so therefore there's no way they could have found. And um, again, correct. And, and I think the difficulty with that argument is there are other bases, reasons, that a jury might find he acted in a heinous, atrocious, or cruel way. Again, leaving her in that state of distress when he could have done something to help, a jury could find that to be heinous or cruel. So they could find some reason other than the beating that that justified heinous, atrocious, and cruel, especially when the trial court doesn't instruct on or define that aggravating factor. And, and you indicated that the burden is on the state to show that there was no possibility, beyond a reasonable doubt, that they would not have found a different verdict. What, what authority do you point us to for that? What, I'm sorry? What authority? For, for saying it's the state's burden to show beyond a reasonable doubt that they would not have reached a lesser verdict. It's, because Beck versus Alabama says you have a federal constitutional right to an instruction on a lesser included offense. There was an instruction on a lesser included offense. If that was error, it's then federal constitutional error, and our statutes say the burden's on the state. So it's harmless beyond a reason. But was, was a federal constitutional argument under Beck made in the trial court? I don't think so, but the, they requested the instruction. <laughs> and, 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 I, I don't recall that they said, I've got a, you're constitutionally obligated to give me that instruction. Okay. There was but, evidence in the record that uh, the behavior of your client after he left was such that he, he left in such a way that he was uh, trying to in a way, uh, secrete the fact that he was uh, leaving as he was. As a matter of fact, left a sweatshirt uh, in a curious place as he left. Uh, was there any uh, thought process to the jury instruction of flight? Um, there was no debate about that, about um, a jury instruction on flight that I recall. With the lack of such, then, how does that impact, if any way, on uh, your theory of culpable negligence or some culpable omission to act? I mean, it's, I, I, if I understand your question, I think it certainly bears on, his leaving certainly bears on the possibility that the jury could have found a culpable omission if they'd been given that instruction. If, yeah, the, th the theory at trial was that your client was in a position where uh, there was no malice, there was no hatred, no ill will, but the fact that he just negligently left her in a state, the victim, uh, where uh, she having had the heart problems, the fact that she had been taking drugs, the fact that he had been taking some drugs as well, somewhat diminished his capacity to such an extent that arguably uh, he did not have malice. So the lack of a flight instruction or the combination of all those factors, how does that impact what you're saying in terms of your theory of the case? 
Um, I, I don't think the lack of a flight instruction impacts my theory of the case in that regard. Um, because the, the base, if, if I'm following your question, the basis for the request for involuntary manslaughter based on a negligent omission was that he could have rendered aid to her and did not do it. That was the express basis the trial lawyer gave for involuntary manslaughter based on that. Well, apparently the state did not request a flight instruction. Uh, not to my recollection. And so the dearth of that perhaps suggests that indeed there was not malice in terms of him escaping a circumstance from which he was trying to get away, but the fact that uh, he was negligent in a culpable sense uh, in terms of his uh, responsibility in that he wasn't trying to get away from something that he intended to commit, but the fact that he was getting away uh, knowing that something had happened that was bad, but that not that he considered to be a crime. I think I agree with what you're saying. I'm not completely sure I, I follow it. I, the absence of a flight instruction, I don't think has much impact on the failure to render aid argument. I mean, the, the flight instruction is generally done to say, you know, this is some evidence of a guilty mind. I mean, that's the basis for the flight instruction. And it might be that the state didn't request it because there's a lot of litigation going on about whether flight instructions are appropriate in certain cases. And the state might have felt like, we don't need to make this case potentially more reversible on appeal by asking for a flight instruction. All I know is, you know, they didn't, they didn't ask for it. I don't think it was given. So given that there is some evidence from which the jury could have rejected malice because malice, the evidence of malice in this case was not conclusive. It was debatable. The trial court should have given involuntary manslaughter upon the request, and I don't think this court can determine that that error is harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. Mr. Winehouse, there, there is a provision in the jury charge uh, that says the state contends that the defendant fled. Evidence of flight may be considered by you together with all other facts and circumstances of this case and determine whether the combined circumstances amount to an admission or show a consciousness of guilt. It goes on from there. It's so on uh, record page 929. Uh, isn't that some instruction with regard to flight? Yeah, I mean, it is, Your Honor, and I just didn't recall that it was given in this case. And I, in the discussion with Justice Morgan, I got confused as to what the record might have shown. But I, my point is the, the existence of a flight instruction doesn't have anything to do with malice and doesn't really have anything to do with whether there was a negligent omission in the case. The flight instruction simply is some it gives the jury some ability to consider the defendant leaving as evidence that he knew he had done something wrong. Well, there's any doubt he knew he had done something wrong. I mean, he, that's why the, the defense conceded at trial that he did the beating. I mean, he knew he had done that. He knew they had been using drugs. He knew that was wrong. And so there'd be some guilty knowledge and I don't think there's any debate about that in the case. 
but I don't think that that guilty knowledge shows that, um, that there's, evidence, there's compelling evidence of malice in the case. So for those reasons, we would ask the court to affirm the Court of Appeal. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. I know my time is short, so I'll be brief. Um, I just want to point you guys to the cases that DeBias cites um, toward the end of the toward the end of the opinion. Um, if you look at the cases that DeBias cites, whenever the instruction for involuntary manslaughter is given, we generally have a set of facts where um, the defense has put forth evidence where it's not clear that. The, the the defendant's acts were intentional. Um, so, so for, for instance, in Tobias' case, um, with the beer bottle, there's evidence that there was no intention for him to break this and to wound him in such a severe way. This case is completely different from Tobias and those other cases in that we do have intentional behavior here. I don't think it's beyond question that um, Mark Brikikov beat Nadia in such a vicious way and left her there. I think that's beyond dispute. Um, in terms of ill will or spite, there's also evidence that um, Nadia actually texted one of her friends and said, I'm kicking him out of the room um, because he's being stupid, essentially. Um, he ends up coming back to the room. A couple hours later, we have this assault, which approximately causes her death. Um, and I believe that that's malice. Um, I believe if you look at the theories of malice, you just have ill will or spite, or you have reckless behavior that rises to the level of basically a depraved heart. Um, somebody who has no sense of social duty um, and who does this to somebody for reasons we don't understand. Um, so I believe that you can get to malice in the, uh, that part too. Um, and I believe my colleague said at one point, other than the beating, there's no other evidence of malice. Do we need anything other than this beating that left her with a broken nose, a broken jaw, and also broken cheekbones to show malice? I don't believe so. Um, in conclusion, I believe that the state um, has met every single burden or every single element of second degree murder. And for, the, for those reasons, there would be no reason to include a um, instruction for involuntary manslaughter. Um, that is my presentation, unless you guys have any other questions for me. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, both counsel. Before we adjourn, uh, I'll take this moment to again thank the folks from North Carolina Central, uh, Justice Hudson's former law clerks. Uh, Justice Hudson has faith faithfully served the state both at the Court of Appeals and now 16 years uh, on our Supreme Court. Uh, for that, we are very grateful for her faithful service, and I do think it appropriate that we show our appreciation to her. Uh, I know that there are folks uh, that not just here, but watching live stream, Justice Hudson, your family, I know uh, very much uh, appreciates uh, your service and 
frankly, they're probably looking forward to spending more time with you in the near future. Uh, we greet you, uh, those that are watching by live stream as well, your son, your daughter, your husband. Um, we're going to adjourn court, but when we, after we do so, uh, I would invite uh, the law clerks and the folks from North Con Central to stay and take an opportunity to maybe have a photo made with Justice Hudson. I know that would be special to her, certainly uh, special to the court. So, Mr. Clerk. <laughs>